Welcome back to the Pilots Lounge. On today's episode, it's going to be a little bit short, but I'm going to talk about my personal experience with aircraft ownership, what decisions led me there, some factors that went into it, as well as some of the costs associated that I both knew about and didn't know about. We've had a lot of questions about this, and I do get a lot of questions at work about this from interested people, uh, so we thought we'd cover it today. So from wherever you're listening, sit back, grab your cup of coffee, and welcome back to the Pilots Lounge. Welcome to the Pilots Lounge, where it's all things freedom, flight, and fitness. Join your hosts, Spencer Payne, Nick Yates, Brett Kroll, and Kyle Kilroy, while we bring you aviators of all types from around the world. Look, we all hate going out to bars and spending a lot of money and then not even really enjoying our drink. Like, it's just, that's not a fun experience, right? Which is why at Brotalian, we are keeping in line with bringing you quality products and we're partnering with an incredible veteran owned business. Hilo Vodka, the official spirit of Brotalian and the Blue Skies Foundation, is a premium craft vodka, six times distilled from corn, proofed with fresh Florida water. It's clean, crisp, there's no bite or aftertaste. It's an absolutely incredible product. I don't even really like vodka, and I do enjoy Hilo Vodka. For those 21 and older, check them out at shophilovodka.com. Use code blue skies at checkout to save some money as well as have some of that money go back to the Blue Skies Foundation. Again, shophilovodka.com, code blue skies. Welcome back, guys. It's great to be back behind the microphone. Um, the last episode we released was actually recorded quite a, a long time ago. Um, but, you know, something that we've wanted to talk about for a while is something that I know a lot of guys at work talk about, uh, and at least on the Army aviation side. And that is aircraft ownership. As people add ratings on, you know, to the rotorooing stuff, a lot of guys are going out and doing all their fixed wing ratings, etc. And or perhaps just want a plane, regardless of whether they're trying to go become an airline pilot or do whatever else. It's something that a lot of people look into. And there's a lot of different ways to go about it. Um, and also a lot of things that I didn't know, didn't think about. Um, maybe didn't even fully understand beforehand. Uh, I, I did learn a lot in the process of, you know, purchasing the plane. Uh, but we'll talk about some of that stuff today as well as kind of the decision-making process that went into at least, you know, my experience with that. So as, you know, I was looking to add more ratings, I started, you know, I was writing for a while and I started to kind of realize, backtracking, I'll start. From the beginning, one day I went to go rent a plane uh, from a local airport. And as I was taxiing, I realized, you know, something didn't feel right. And on pre-flight, everything looked normal. You know, checked all the stuff per, you know, per the checklist. It was a Cessna 172. And as I got towards the end of the taxiway, you know, right at the, you know, right at the hold short line for the runway, I kept feeling the front end of the aircraft bottoming out on the, uh, the strut. And I was like, what in the world is going on? So I got up there to the end and I knew something was wrong. And so I was like, I don't know what's going on with this plane, but I'm going to pull off to the side. It was, a, you know, it was dead quiet. It was in the middle of all the COVID stuff. And 
figure out what's going on. Told the tower what I was doing. It was a smaller airport. They were like, yeah, sure, uh, whatever, do what you need to do. So I was like, cool. We shut the airplane down. I get out and I look and I was like, man, strut looks okay. So then I put a little bit of weight on the front cowling and the strut had been completely deserviced. You know, there was zero nitrogen in there, no, nothing at all. And it was just straight up, straight down, um, which could potentially cause a prop strike. So like on, on a landing, if I came in and let's say I had a little bit harder landing or something of that nature, you know, it's a very real possibility that you could end up with, you know, damaging the props on the aircraft. So I was like, okay, well, that's not going to work. Got back in, taxied back, got, you know, got the nitrogen, filled it, all that cool stuff. That was strike one. When strike two occurred, I got into the airplane and luckily I was, you know, I was just going to fly some traffic patterns, but I realized very quickly that the GPS had expired in that airplane. And I had actually planned on doing an instrument flight later in the week in that same airplane. It's not my airplane. I don't know it. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go update, pay, you know, pay the Garmin fees to update the rental plane. That was strike two. Strike three was when I went to go get in the next day. Once again, I knew I couldn't do instruments. So I went to go back out and do some more patterns, maybe a little cross country. And the, <laughs> it's actually, I hate talking about it. And that's why I didn't name, you know, name any names, but the seat track in the, on the uh, pilot side of the aircraft was completely broken. And I, I, I couldn't go fly. I couldn't even sit in the aircraft. I wasn't going to sit right seat in this plane. And so I was like, you know what? Th- this is it. I, I'm done. I, I'm done renting this plane. I'm done renting from here. Like every single time I've gone to fly, it's something. And so that led me to some, some thought processes that when you rent and I have, you know, I have nothing against renting airplanes. Thousands of people do it. It's a great option, especially if it's from a reputable place, reputable school. And there are some sides to that, however, that I think are worth addressing. Several schools, and when I say schools, I mean smaller operations that you might be renting from, may not actually own those airplanes. It's actually pretty common. A lot of times they will lease them out, you know, owners will lease them out to these schools, helps pay for the plane, you know, et cetera. They can fly them when they can and, you know, make some money off of the plane, kind of like renting out a house. However, this puts, depending on whatever agreement they had, this puts the maintenance of that airplane still on the owner. And there's a level of disassociation with responsibility for the maintenance of that aircraft potentially from that school, which is what was happening in this case. You know, they were like, well, we're leasing this plane. And so they just didn't put in the time and effort into making sure this thing was, was good to go. Needless to say, some of those I probably could have like the strut. I didn't put a bunch of pressure on the front of the aircraft. I looked at the strut and it was fine. So it was just things like that that made me quickly realize, you know, I don't necessarily know how I feel about some of the maintenance on these aircraft. That was, that was the biggest decision for me. Then when I started doing the math of how much I wanted to fly and how much that would cost in rental fees compared to what it's going to cost me to just buy my own airplane and, you know, and go forward. And obviously it depends on what ratings you're doing. It depends on where you're flying, et cetera. But for me, the money that I was spending on a 172 if I flew anything more than about six hours a month, it was just as beneficial for me to go 
on my own airplane. Now, that was my big decision point. Everybody has a little bit different ones. Um, second decision point, not as big of a deal um, as the maintenance side of things. However, scheduling. For me, because it's my airplane and I, you know, I can use it when I want to use it. I know so many people who have fought and fought to be able to get an airplane. Now, if you are at a big, you know, big operation or a bigger flight school, this isn't necessarily a problem. However, if you are on the smaller cell, like the smaller side of things where they might only have one or two planes, especially near a military base, everybody wants to fly and everybody's trying to get their ratings. So now you're battling for time. And I didn't want to do that. The last thing. And I think there is a sense of pride in, in having your plane. Um, it is an investment and we'll kind of talk a little bit about the costs, some hidden, some not. Um, but there's some pride in having your own plane, knowing that's yours, knowing the history of that plane and becoming very good at flying that plane. You know, when we had Fred North on, uh, on our very first episode, probably one of the like coolest things that he told us was, you know, be a master in your craft. While I might never be an airline pilot, and who knows, maybe I will, if I go out and fly this Cherokee 180, which is, in my opinion, for now, for the foreseeable future, more airplane than I'm going to need. I can become very proficient and not necessarily an expert per se. I don't like throwing that word out. But I can become very good at flying that airplane and knowing everything there is to know about that airplane, sort of like being a Blackhawk pilot or being an F-18 pilot or whatever it may be. There's a reason that you don't fly Blackhawks, Apaches, and Chinooks or you know every aircraft in the inventory because you want to be able to become an expert in that aircraft. And you know what Fred North said was like, become an expert in that airframe. For him, it's you know the A-Star. And he has thousands and thousands of hours in that A-Star. Yes, he's flown other things, but that is his primary aircraft. He's flown other things to get that experience, but still go back to his bread and butter. So that was, that was a big thing. And, I, and I'll tell you what, when you walk into the hangar and you know that, yes, it is money, but that is yours and you know everything there is to know about it and you take care of it, you will fly differently. You will be much more attentive because you have a little bit more into it. And it, that just goes back to the whole, you know, the whole pride aspect. Now, getting into some of the, the costs associated, things that a lot of people maybe initially don't think about. You know, most people look at, a, look at an airplane and say, okay, well, uh, I've got to make my, my payment on it, whatever that may be. And I need to make sure that I've got a place to put it. So now you're either paying for tie-down space at an airport outside or a hangar. And, you know, a lot of people have asked me how much the hangar costs. I have seen hangers range from $50 a month all the way up as expensive as you could think, really. Um, I would say ballpark range for at least in the Midwest is anywhere from $100 to $300 a month for like an air, for a, for a decent hangar uh, to be able to store your plane. Tie-downs outside, I, I'm not sure. I, they vary significantly depending on where you're at. And then you have what's known as a gang hanger where those also vary significantly in price depending on where you're at. 
Uh, gang hangers basically are a big hanger where you pay, and, you know, your plane is in there with several others. Some are really nice. Some you have to be very careful about because of how many aircraft get stacked in there um, and whether or not they have a service or a dedicated person to pull the hanger out, put it, or pull the airplane out and put it back. So those are all kind of things that go into that decision and how much you do want to spend or don't want to spend. Um, and it doesn't take a whole lot. My big thing for me and my personal decision making was I just want a roof over my plane. I, I don't want it to, it's been hangered, it's, you know, the entirety of its, of its existence. And I don't want to be the first one to leave this thing outside. Paint looks great. All that stuff looks great. So worth a little bit, you know, in the long run, it's worth a little bit more money now to be able to, uh, you know, keep it looking good, take care of it a little bit more. So that's, that's another big cost when you look at, you know, your annual fees that go into this. Um, and on the note of annual fees, you have your annual airplane inspection, which a lot of people don't think a lot of brand new owners do not, or, you know, people looking to buy aircraft don't necessarily think about. Um, now an annual, <laughs> it's hard to pinpoint how much an annual is going to cost you. You can, you can Google, you know, your airplane and literally just put in, you know, Cessna 172 average annual inspection fee or an average annual cost. Uh, and that'll kind of give you a good breakdown of, you know, what you can expect. For instance, for a Cherokee 180, uh, Piper Cherokee 180 on your annual, it could be every anywhere from $700 all the way up to, you know, a thousand for a regular annual. It just depends on what needs to be done. However, the importance of this is that they do go through and, and make sure everything is squared away. They look at ADs and all, all sorts of things with that airplane to make sure that it is continually safe for, for you to fly. Now where the cost can come in is a lot of maintenance gets stacked into an annual or is written up that says, oh, can be completed at annual. For instance, Piper recently had a wing spar inspection that was published, uh, required for several serial numbers, and that was the outcome of a couple incidents, but one in particular, which was a Embry-Riddle student um, that him and his instructor perished uh, because there was a failure in the wing spar, and the wing itself disbonded from the aircraft, uh, which caused them to spiral out of the sky. This is the kind of stuff that I do not want to skip on, but there is a huge sense of reassurance knowing that I'm in control and I know exactly what the status is of my plane when that kind of stuff comes out and, you know, Piper says, hey, this needs to be look at, looked at, or, you know, the FAA says, hey, this needs to be looked at on all of these serial numbers. So that's awesome too. And that's a big deal in the military too. We have AMAMs, ACMs, we have all these things that come out that require inspections and making sure that stuff is tracked in the logbook and is good to go is a huge part of what we do. And that's what keeps us safe. So annual inspections are probably the biggest fee outside of whatever you owe on the aircraft um, that you're going to be looking at every year. Now, depending on what equipment you have in the aircraft, per se, let's say you have a Garmin. Well, Garmin requires a subscription to keep your database updated. The subscription is not necessarily inexpensive. Um, I do believe that some other companies have some, what I'll say, deals. Uh, but once again, these are all of these are going to equate to several hundred dollars. So it's just something to keep in mind, uh, depending on what systems are in your aircraft. With 
especially right now with looking at airplanes to purchase in the near future, uh, things like ADSB in, or I'm sorry, ADSB out, I should say, is going to be the requirement or is the requirement. Um, making sure that all of your systems are up to date on their inspections, things like that. These additional things are going to add cost because they take time for an AI to go through, sign off, make sure are good with that aircraft. It may seem like a lot, but in the long run, when you actually sit down, do the math, it's really not too bad depending on how much you are going to fly. If you are somebody who only flies, you know, maybe an hour or two a month, then no, I, I don't think that that would, I don't think it would be beneficial necessarily unless you're renting out the plane or you're buying it purely as an investment to, to do that. However, if you are somebody who's looking at flying, you know, 10, 15, 20 hours a month on your own in your free time, then absolutely it is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. And on top of that, about the only cost that you're going to have other than oil or maybe some things here and there is your insurance and then whatever you choose to put into that airplane. There is so much that can be done now with, with so little, especially with for flight. As long as you meet the base like ADSB out requirements, if you just want to go fly on beautiful days for relaxation, you don't have to spend a crazy amount of money. Now, if you're getting into an aircraft that's fully equipped with the best avionics and things like that, yes, you're going to spend more. And the big thing to understand with avionics, if you are installing them in your aircraft, as I have recently learned, because I had no idea the expense that was associated with installing avionics into a plane. Most of your expense comes from the man hours. They have to take apart the panel, put it in. But the big understanding that you have to have if you are ever looking to sell that plane is that you're not going to get 100% of that cost back. The planning factor is really going to be about half. So yes, if you add $20,000 worth of glass instrumentation into your panel, you can expect to add about $10,000 onto your selling value of that airplane should you choose to get rid of it. But that doesn't necessarily, in my opinion, deter me from wanting to do that only because if I do that, it increases my quality of life while I'm flying the airplane and I get the enjoyment out of it. Now, it's really up to each individual person to determine how much that is worth. For me, especially with the modern day glass instrumentation of, you know, something like the Aspen Evolution or, uh, you know, a Garmin or Avidyne unit, those are such added features of safety to me that that is 100% worth it. There's so much value in adding things to your airplane that makes it easier on you, which is why in the military, most of the aircraft switch over to glass cockpits. They reduce pilot workload and make things make sense for you, make things less stressful. So with that said, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing to determine is, in my opinion, is one, how much are you flying? If you're flying a lot, could be worth it. If you're not flying that much, maybe keep renting and just make sure that who you're renting from has all the appropriate documentation and appropriate maintenance done on the aircraft before you get in. Because the last thing you want is to have an issue and then it be pinned on you. Always buy, if you are renting, always, always cover yourself and get renter's insurance because you may not necessarily know who actually owns that airplane and who it's insured under or if they are insured at all. Secondly, build a spreadsheet and make sure that when you add all of these costs together, that is something that's reasonable. 
what you don't want is to dive into the purchase and, and have this beautiful airplane and you'd be so excited. And then a couple months later, you realize just how much stress you are, you're having because of all these unasso- like, or associated costs that maybe you didn't think about. And that's okay. To, that's okay. But in my opinion, what I did was I built a spreadsheet, you know, had a maintenance column, a hanger column, a uh, how much you owe column, a rainy day column if I ever needed to have something replaced. If all of those fit in, then great. You know, added a added benefit, cool. It's inside of your budget. Awesome. Do it. The other thing that you have to remember is when you're renting, whether you're renting wet or dry, as much as you're flying, you're paying for the gas yourself, which is okay. But biggest advice on that, open up for flight and hunt for gas prices. Where you are hangering your aircraft may have the best one. And I actually looked to hanger my aircraft somewhere that had one low, low fuel cost or fuel costs that were uh, discounted for people who hangered their aircraft at that field. Huge benefit. Lastly, I'll leave you with this. If you're going to purchase it, talk to people and see if, if you can go fly the plane. If you even better, if you can talk to the previous owner of that plane, maybe get them to take you up, show you, show you all the features of that airplane, spend some time with them in it, get to know that person. Because if you have an issue and I'm lucky enough that the person who used to own my airplane is still at the airport. Every time I've had an issue or I didn't know how something worked, it's easy enough to have a phone call away. And if something that maybe they didn't know was an issue as well, it can be addressed. So many benefits. Aviation is a very tight knit community. People want to help each other. And if you are having a problem, don't hesitate to ask other people. I think the coolest part of, you know, having your own plane and being part of these communities are just how much camaraderie there is among these groups and how much people want to see the other person succeed at being a good, safe pilot. Everybody loves seeing each other's airplanes. It's really something that's unique to aviation and not just like civilian aviation. It's very common on the military side too. So it's, it's something that's pretty cool. If you have any questions about aircraft ownership, shoot them over to the pilot's lounge Instagram page I'll try to answer what I can. I wanted to just kind of illuminate some of these costs that a lot of people don't think about, but definitely exist. Um, And I hope that this kind of helps you in that decision-making process if you are choosing to go down the road or start looking at airplanes of your own. Take care, guys. See you next time on the Pilot's Lounge.